Welcome back, everyone, to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I am Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today, Brad, we've got a couple of our uh, co-workers on uh, to talk a little bit about small grains. Uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a smaller acreage crop, but a lot of folks are interested in it. Some people, it's a mainstay of their crop production. They're kind of their farm enterprise. They they use small grains for, for that purpose, and uh, so very important to them. And then there's also, we get a fair contingent of people uh, in southern Minnesota uh, where I prominently work, uh, that are interested in small grains but don't know a lot about it, and so oftentimes we'll get some questions and 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 uh, you know interest in it, but you know they might not know how, know how to get started or might need kind of a refresher or something of that sort. So, um, has that been your experience, Brad? Well, yeah, it's it's a bit of a for it being such a major crop worldwide, it is a bit of a niche crop in southern Minnesota, but it certainly has a presence. Uh, in fact, uh, I know we were, uh, I was driving somewhere with one of my boys uh, a couple of weeks ago, made a comment to me, we were passing by a, a large field of winter wheat, and he said, how come there's so much wheat this year? And I said, well, I don't know, I think this is kind of the, the amount we see normally. It's uh, We were in an area uh, in uh, Lesueur County where there normally is a lot. I think he's, his reference was around our, where we live in Waseca County, you don't see it, but uh, but uh, yeah, it, it fits a it fits a niche. It's uh, uh, really good in a in a crop rotation. Of course, we understand the benefits of lengthening crop rotations, particularly uh, if you've got issues, uh, you know, like soybean cyst nematode or other pest problems that benefit from a longer rotation. And of course, uh, there's a lot of folks who have. Uh, uh, some niche markets. Uh, they might have a market for the straw, uh, or they uh, have something else going on uh, regarding where they're selling the grain. Uh, uh, you know, and then of course we've even seen a little bit more uh, uptick in guys uh, growing rye uh, just to sell as seed for cover crops too. So there's some of that too. So so lots of opportunities, and and so there's some some interest in these uh, small grain crops, and so. For today's discussion, uh, we've brought on two uh, guests. Uh, first, we've got Joachim Wiersma, a small grain specialist. Uh, he hails from the Red River Valley of the North there uh, from Crookston at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center. Welcome, Joachim. Good morning, Ryan and Brad. And uh, also, we've got one of our co-workers who's on the crops team with us, uh, Jared Goplin. Uh, who, Jared, I don't know, is it fair to say you've kind of got... Uh, You've got some focuses uh, within the crops group or educator group. You're kind of the, the the leader around some of these small grains and some of the forage endeavors that have been happening most recently as far as some of the educational offerings and things like that. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so I work you know, probably mostly with the small grain and forage crops. So I uh, particularly focus on small grains in southern Minnesota and let Yoakum be a little bit more of the focus in the north where most of the acres are, obviously. So welcome, Jared. And uh, and, and you've got some personal experience, too, with small grains because I, I know uh, maybe you want to take a second and talk uh, just, uh, you, well, you farm, too. And so you, you do some small grain production in a, in a practical, real-world sense. Um, you want to mention... Uh, where you're from and, and, uh, you know, what kind of, uh, crop enterprise you guys have? Yeah. So I do, in addition to my educator responsibilities, we do farm as well. 
in western Yellow Medicine County. So we do have, I think, a whopping 60 acres of spring wheat this year. Um, I don't know. As this hot weather starts to set in, we're kind of maybe wondering why uh, in some ways. It's not every year we get 100-degree weather in the first week of June. But um, but we do have a little bit of small grains, uh, a little bit of, uh, obviously, corn and soybean are the primary crops, uh, a little bit of hay as well, and, and some cow-calf operations. So you know, in my neck of the woods, I really do like small grains. And even in years where they might not yield particularly well with some of the livestock, um, you know, and that's really one of the big attractive parts. Obviously, you get some bedding if you're if you're taking straw, but you know, also just the whole idea of of cover crops or forage cover crops. Um, you know, a lot of times, like last year, we were able to get the 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 wheat off on I think it was like Ju- July 24th. Um, obviously, that's a heck of a lot of growing season to you know put a forage crop out there, and we ended up getting you know putting millet out last year. So. Um, basically it just, it provides another opportunity to get some grazing, some forage value. So, you know, there is some other opportunities, um, even though, you know, some folks think we're crazy for, for having small grains in Southern men. Well, yeah, there's a, there's room for everybody though, to try things. And it's interesting to kind of hear your practical experience and, and, uh, and hear a little bit about that. No, I was just going to say, because, well, because Jared brought up the, the, the weather here, whether it's going to be and just recently has turned real hot, and uh, it had been quite cool, and I had been uh, noting what an ideal year I thought it had been so far for small grains, um, and I've noted in our area that the winter wheat is well headed out. Uh, uh, where are we at as far as, I mean, I, re- I realize where, where we grow the majority of the small grains in this country, uh, Kansas, Nebraska, places like that, uh, Oklahoma, obviously it gets super hot in the summertime. So have we gone past the point where uh, it's okay to be hot or are we going to be dinging the crop here with the, with the weather this week? Okay, so I'll take a stab at that first. So a little bit of physiology. Uh, compared to corn and beans. Uh, winter wheat and spring wheat, barley, oats, rye, are all what we call cool season grasses. They really like it, like I like it, 75 degrees during the daytime. And as long as I don't have to turn the air conditioning on to sleep well, the crop is happy and I'm happy. Now, when you get these really hot temperatures, the crop will increase its pace of development. And obviously, once you get past 92 degrees as a daytime high, uh, during that really hot period during the day, the, the, the photosynthesis, you know, the, the, basically the engine that makes starch ultimately and, and protein and that makes the plant live, um, shuts down. So the plant goes on a weight loss program. So we are, in a way, on these really hot periods of the day, the crop in a sense is walking back. If you're in grain fill, that, you know, that's going to cost yield. It's one of the reasons why we have higher proteins compared to other parts of the world. Um, That protein pump, if you think of protein versus starch, starch is first affected before grain protein deposition is affected. So very high temperatures during the day, are not great for yield but in many parts of the state it is really dry and what that means is that we actually as long as we still have subsoil moisture uh, our dew points are really low and that actually is in a way something that is saving this crop that earliest winter wheat where the grain fill has now started 
if we don't have really high dew points, we still get cool nights. That means respiration, uh, the same thing you and I are doing uh, to stay alive, burning energy to maintain yourself, slows down and it isn't cutting into yield potential as much. Now, if we start combining this, you know, these high temperatures with really high dew points, then the nighttime temperatures go up. That's when we really get dinged in yield. So, yeah, we're taking, you know, the next couple of days, we're probably on the earliest wheat, uh, or the earliest spring wheat, and especially the winter wheat and the rye, we're taking some off the top but it's not a disaster by any stretch of the imagination. The earlier, the later seeded crop, and most of the spring wheat, is now, the earliest is probably six, seven leaf, and a lot of it in the northern Red River Valley, where just a little bit ago when I was out in the field, the thermometer was already at 100, um, is at the four, five leaf stage. Um, yes, we're maybe going to lose some tillers, where if the crop can't take up enough moisture, it basically, in a way, tries to get out of dodge and may, you know, save itself and it will sacrifice the tillers. But there's so much plasticity in its development later. Um, so the smaller, he bigger heads and then more kernels per head and heavier kernels that as long as the canopy still closes and captures all the sunlight later during the grain fill period, we can still have very high yields. The biggest challenge that a lot of parts of, and it starts basically in the Southern Red River Valley all the way to the Canadian border, um, we need water. We, most areas except for a small band around uh, basically Oslo Alvarado over to Argyle, that got a seven inch uh, downpour about a week and a half ago. The rest of Northwest Minnesota has seen very scarce to no precip. And we're living on basically soil moisture reserves from last year. And we're not, we don't have enough to finish the crop. You know, that was one, Yoakum, I was just thinking to one of the articles we put together last year. Uh, same story. Uh, I was just more in line with uh, flowering with spring wheat in southern Minnesota that we had put together. And um, I had actually taken a thermometer out to one of the fields at that time. Obviously, the crop was heading, so pretty pretty lush canopy there. And and the, the, the temperature in that crop was like four or five degrees cooler than what it was, you know, up on the road right next to it, just because of that evaporative cooling. You know, in that situation where you do have plenty of subsoil moisture, obviously, if we get into drought stress, um, you know, that whole evaporative cooling um, thing changes a little bit, but uh, it is kind of amazing uh, how much more comfortable it can be when you're out in the field uh, as opposed to just standing on black dirt somewhere or on some concrete. Well, and uh, you're in a pretty tough situation. I, I saw a picture most recently of uh, some fields. Uh, it, it must have been near the Fargo area, north of Fargo somewhere, but some of the cracks that have opened up already in that clay soil are, are phenomenal. I, you know, I remember helping uh, Krishona Martinson with some of her work, uh, with her graduate work, and those cracks you'd get in the soil, you could lose a, a clippers down them because they, they, the clay shrinks and swells so much they get giant, uh, giant cracks. But uh, are there any prospects for rain coming up for the, the Red River Valley, Yoakum? Um, not really. 
they're they get pushed back uh, every single week and you know we can joke about this but you know when it's wet and they in the weather forecast for for a 30 percent chance of rain you know it's going to come whereas if it's dry and they predict 30 percent you know it's not going to come i was earlier this week i was uh in the plots and these little thunderheads you know formed and none of the precip out of those little thunderheads was reaching the surface we're we're very dry wow um but if we take a step back earlier to the season at planting time we were really kind of had a good outlook for small grains initially uh with the planting dates i mean it were we we were at least right on the mark if not better than normal for oh yeah getting things planted I, you know all the small grains um there is some some problems with uneven emergence because of placing the seed in, in a really dry seed bed in some cases because of, of just how dry some of the fields were and so you see some differences there but overall I think stands are phenomenal. Uh, in Southern Min, um, a lot of the wheat got seeded right after Easter, then had this, you know, relatively cold spell, but had some moisture with it. Uh, up north, most of it got seeded in the third week of April, which is probably a week, two weeks earlier than in recent, no, actually three weeks earlier than in recent years. So overall, everybody right now looks at is, in a way, is still optimistic about the small grains crop, and as am I. Um, it's not lost by any stretch of the imagination, even though we're, you know, right now the thermometer is at 100 degrees. Um, it was cool. Uh, the crop in the south tilled well. You can see this in some of the winter wheat, uh, winter wheat and the rye fields are look phenomenal. Um, I had one grower complain that some of his hybrid rye had gone down. And I asked him, well, how thick is it? And he goes, well, it's thicker than hair on a dog. And that tells you something about how favorable the conditions had been last fall and earlier this spring for that ride to really take advantage of the growing conditions. And so I'm still relatively optimistic. You know, yes, we need some water, but as, as the crop is with the disease situation and the and, and insect pressure, there's very little, if any, diseases. Uh, we're starting to get just the first reports of some leaf rust and stripe rust in Southern Min. Uh, Bruce Potter a while back found already aphids and we're getting some scattered reports of aphids here and there, but they're not in large numbers. Um, this is right now still looking good. So you have a, a a barley and oat trial in uh, Rochester, just east of Rochester on the Lawler farm. And uh, I was there uh, a week ago, actually, uh, Friday afternoon uh, last week. Things looked really good. Um, crop looked really clean. Um, here's the thing. We had, uh, we had about an inch and a half of rain in April. And I'm looking at a spreadsheet here. We had about three and a third inches in May, and uh, and so uh, from the perspective there, um, what would you say with the moisture in, in those two crops and, and and the outlook for for that particular trial? At you know, it's a pretty nice and forgiving soil on the Lawler farm. It has water holding capacity, so I would still 
even though you know you're below average for precipitation in that area if we catch one more rain that crop has been made you know re remember we only need about 13 in your area probably about 13 to 14 inches of precip in total for a small grain crop to mature and be able to reach maximum yield potential so something the the listeners not might not be familiar with that particular farm the soil type uh, probably has some of the most plant available water as far as the capacity to have plant available water of, of any soil in Minnesota. And the, um, actually the NRCS was there doing a project with those guys this spring. And, and so they were taking some soil bores and, and going down, uh, till they hit, uh, you know, parent material, I guess, or the, the underlying bedrock. Um, and, I want to say they were on a hill slope. They were getting down to seven or eight feet before they started to hit broken rubble. So there's a lot of soil uh, there. Um, not saying the roots could explore that far or that deep, but there certainly there certainly is the the potential to to have a lot of water down in that soil profile. Um, Yoakum. Uh, a picture that came out earlier this spring, I think Bruce put something on the internet about uh, uh, rust on buckthorn. And the buckthorn was just orange with, with pustules. Now, I haven't seen that this year in southeast Minnesota. We do have uh, a lot of buckthorn. Uh, it's very prolific in our tree lines and woodlots. Um, haven't seen rust to that extent on buckthorn here. But certainly that's got to be on people's minds uh, when we start to talk about oat and oat production as far as um, disease and disease management. Um, do you want to make any comments on that particular disease and, and uh, what we might be looking forward to as far as managing that, okay. that one? Yeah, I can. So buckthorn is the alternate host for crown rust in oats. It's the only rust that survives locally. All the other rusts, whether that's stem rust, stripe rust, or leaf rust in wheat, or leaf rust in barley, or in rye, all those have to come in on subtly wind events. Uh, but crown rust is the exception. And buckthorn basically allows it to survive here over the winter months. It forms then a, a really interesting structure called Nasacea that is almost like a little balloon that will open up and it will release spores and those spores then will actually infect the initial uh, oat, it will initially infect oats and then the oats will start to produce an other type of spore that spreads the crop in, in the crop further. So it's a multi-cyclical disease um, on oats and that is actually one of the great things about this is that, you know, when we get these in these these initial infections on buckthorn, if it then jumps uh, to the oats, if there's oats in the neighborhood and it starts a little bit in the bottom of the canopy, that is not of itself isn't a disaster yet. It's when we what we want to do is keep the flag leaf and the penultimate leaf clean. And so we can monitor the situation and the crop is indeed reaching that stage now where you're going to have to make that decision. Now, my rule of thumb is at, at the present time, 
most of our varieties uh, are susceptible to very susceptible to crown rust. And even varieties that we rate as being a little bit more resistant, like St uh, St uh, Dion, for instance, Dion is still holding up relatively good. But because you have these local buckthorn you know, sources of inoculum, they are genetically somewhat different from one another. That means that in your particular area, in your geography, you may actually see a slightly different reaction uh, to some of these races on the oat variety that you're growing. If you see a little bit of crown rust in the bottom parts of your canopy, uh, in the middle of the canopy, I basically tell every single grower, use a fungicide at flag leaf. So at Fix 9, when the flag leaf is basically fully open, apply a fungicide. And then if it's really severe, if the conditions, and it has to be actually a little bit cooler than it is the upcoming weather, ideally you probably want to have it around 80 degrees for crown rust, and you need some leaf wetnesses in the morning, so a little bit higher dew points. If the crown rust gets away from us, and you can see, see a lot of pressure, we have an option to make a second application just at heading, which is another you know week or so from now. And that, generally the flag leaf application is enough to carry us through the season. If we have a really severe pressure, that second application will help us extend that control a little bit longer. And what that will do is maintain test weight, which is really important in the case of marketing of oats to the millers, and ultimately also maintain yield. I'd, I'd kind of ditto that. That's pretty common practice for folks to be putting on a fungicide at flag leaf. The challenging thing in my mind, if we're going to be kind of more in the situation where we're trying to make a decision as opposed to just green lighting, you know, putting it on once we have that flag leaf out, is both that yield potential as well as the potential for the disease development. Because right now, like you said, we're really dry. I mean, the, the dew points are abnormally low uh, as far as, you know, our climate. So, that's so going to be a challenging one to 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 kind of get your head around, I guess. As far as do you go like normal or do you wait and see? I if it's the flag leaf out and you don't see any yet, postpone that application to indeed. Because remember, it it it's a multicyclical disease. It takes a little bit, about seven days, before those pustules on the bottom have a chance to really infect the top, and so. If, the, if, the, if there's nothing in the bottom of the canopy, hold off, save that money, and push that second application to the, as late as you can do it, which is at heading. That's what the FIX 10.5 crop half-headed, well, beginning of, head, of heading. Um, and then you, you're still, you're still with, on the label, and you've extended that window of control. And if the disease then starts, you're you've protected that canopy okay good pointers um so jared uh not to totally switch gears here we'll come back to the weather and production and things but uh most recently we were kind of given the green light to go ahead with uh doing some some in-person programming so workshops and, and and field days and those sorts of things and so 
Um, you know, for folks that are interested in small grains, visiting with you guys about these uh, topics and, and learning a little bit about what's going on, uh, there should be some opportunities around the state coming up pretty quick here in June for folks to do that. Do you want to mention uh, what your what your plan is? Uh, and we'll put more details in our podcast description once once we uh, uh, publish this. So, Jared, do you want to make mention of that stuff? Yeah, so uh, I think we ended up, I think we have 11 scheduled. I was just looking earlier, um, basically north to south in the state. So we are kind of getting back at it. Um, you know, we will, of course, be at Rochester. I think that's on uh, Monday the 21st. Uh, and basically the, the locations in the south will be the 21st, 2nd, and 3rd. And then uh, those in the north are, are a little bit later into July. But, you know, if you do have questions, uh, you know, on any of these things, you know, it's kind of fun to see that go to the field days and, and see some of those varieties. And you can learn Yoakum's uh, first commandment of growing oats. Um, you know, he can, he can go into that in more detail if you come to the field days. <laughs> So as far as uh, who should who should go, uh, uh, Jared, we kind of talked when we we were doing some of the introduction of the uh, the, the podcast today about uh, obviously growers who just simply have small grains in their rotation, but we also mentioned uh, that the uh, emergence of cover crops is a is a is a popular trend, and the fact that a lot of folks are growing. Uh, cover or uh, growing small grains for seed sources for cover crops um you got stuff for both audiences or is the cover crop uh, seed production folks a little bit different group well that's in, in all honesty that's kind of the fun part of these is we do get sort of all walks of life um you know get farmers that have been growing small grains for years really never quit you get people that are interested from you know a, a grain standpoint maybe they have some some markets that they've come into um, you know, there's a few guys that are growing barley for malting markets all the way near the Iowa border. Um, so, you know, there's just these different sort of specialty markets that have popped up, which certainly has generated some interest. Uh, some around the whiskey industry and rye and, and some of the new, new varieties that are coming out. Um, but we also get a lot of people who just have a general curiosity or maybe they like to drink whiskey or drink beer or uh, eat oatmeal or whatever, and, and people just kind of have a general interest. So we do get some of that as well. Um, and then, you know, depending on the location, a lot of times in that sort of dairy belt from central Min down through Rochester, you know, where there is a little bit more dairies, um, there is obviously a little more, uh, small grains that are produced for forage. Uh, so that does tend to be a little bit more of a, a hotter topic. Um, and of course with cover crops, you know, small grains are a big one for cover crops, you know, just on this topic of crown rust, uh, back in uh, 2019, when we all had all of the prevent planting acres, you know, folks went cheap, planted oats, hoped to get forage out of it. And, and like Yoakum said, you know, sort of that 80 degree weather with high dew points, it's a disaster for crown rust. So, you know, these folks that thought they'd get a bumper crop of oats ended up seeing them covered in, uh, in, uh, in rust and obviously didn't do so well. So there is, there is a little bit for everyone and, and we just kind of handle it as a Q&A and, and discussion format. So really, if you have any questions, we're happy to dive into all kinds of topics. And, you know, we're, I was just going to say, Jared, you know, we're, we're not that far apart in age, but probably enough so that uh, there's been some some changes in agriculture. Uh, when, when I was a child in the 1970s, uh, we still had a, a fair amount of small dairies around uh, pretty much every field of alfalfa had oats put in ahead of it as a nurse crop uh, and and for the most part they were allowed to go to maturity and harvested as grain. Uh, you made mention of um, 
of uh, harvesting small grains, uh, oats particularly as a forage crop instead. Uh, where are we, we at as far as using uh, small grains as a nurse crop? I mean, to what extent does that even happen anymore? Because in my area, most of the dairies have gotten much larger and they're just simply, uh, uh, I think from a management perspective, they don't want to mess with it. They're just direct seeding the alfalfa and, and uh, then being aggressive with their weed control and, and just getting off running with their alfalfa. Uh, where are we at with that as a practice anymore? That's kind of funny you mentioned that or bring that up, Brad, because yes, just yesterday, we had a project meeting. I'm involved in a life cycle assessment project looking at carbon footprint and all these things with alfalfa production systems. But one of the topics that we're trying to tackle or, or deal with is this whole nurse crop and what that might, you know, what role that might play. And FSA um, has some data that indicates only like one and a half percent of, of alfalfa acres are put in with an oat nurse crop. But we also just recently sent out a survey to farmers and crop consultants and the number there came back closer to 60%. So there's obviously something going on here. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there with some of these bigger, bigger operations that, you know, are really focused on quality and consistent product. You know, if you do have an oat nurse crop, it's a different feed ingredient. You kind of got to rebalance things and, and handle it maybe a little bit different. So I think some of the bigger operations have gone away from that just based on consistency and, and to make things more streamlined. But when you get into some of these areas, you know, central Minnesota, you know, down towards Rochester, where you do have some of these smaller dairies that are still around, I think some of the smaller ones still uh, still have been using those a little bit more extensively. And that also overlaps, you know, maybe with where uh, there's a little bit more, um, you know, highly erodible type soils. You're growing, you know, forages on, on slopes and those types of things where, you know, you're really trying to protect that soil a little bit more, which obviously is where the nurse crops come in a little bit handier there, so. But... Brad, I want to actually, you know, open this up a little bit further. It, yes, I will answer every single question from, I'll try to answer every single question from every single grower, whether that's a dairy farmer interested in triticale um, as an emergency forage or a 40,000 acre corn bean farmer that has a plethora of problems and wonders whether or not small grains have a fit there's some really recent work coming out in the agronomy journal uh, that reiterates what we've known for a long time from a very famous uh, more local data source. So this most recent article came uh, from the University of Guelph that demonstrated again that including a small grains uh, in the rotation really benefits corn and beans. We've known that data for a long time uh, because there's a very local study, you know, if we call Wisconsin local, that has demonstrated that same principle time and time again. Um, corn and beans, and I'll be, and Ryan can cut this out later, but, you know, I grew up in the Netherlands. A corn and bean rotation, as it was called when I got here in the early 90s to go to graduate school, to me sounded like an oxymoron. I've been taught since that indeed the corn and bean rotation works for the corn. Corn really only needs a one year break to really see, you know, be happy in a sense. As long as you don't look at extended diapause corn rootworm and a bunch of other problems or herbicide resistant weeds. If you just look at the agronomy, 
Corn really is happy after a one-year break. Beans, not so much. But if you look at the whole system, and if you do those analyses, rotations, as you started this conversation, make sense. And in that, winter cereals in southern min, whether that be winter rye or winter wheat, just make good sense. It, it, we are in the transition, in, a, in many ways, between winter cereal production, which is to the south, and spring cereal production, which is to the north. We need some luck with spring cereals. A year like this, where we can start in the first week of April, is phenomenal. I'm still very optimistic about the yield potential all through southern Minnesota. I expect the rye in the plots in Rochester to be in that 140 to 180 bushel for the oats. I expect that to be 80 bushel barley. I expect the winter wheat in Lacenter to be in the three digits. I expect the rye to be in the 140 bushel range, the hybrid rye. It, but the, the winter cereals are, especially the winter rye, are a very good fit across Southern Mint if you want to widen up your rotations. So we welcome everybody, not, you know, not just the oddball uh, neighbor that has the 60 acres of wheat in, you know, say, Lucky Parle County, but, oh, sorry, that wasn't my trash can. Uh, every single other grower. Yeah, you, you bring up some, some good points, Joachim. And, and Jared, you kind of, you have some firsthand experience with widening rotation, some of the impacts on weeds, don't you? Yeah, that was some, uh, some, some of the work I'm trying to forget uh, back in grad school when I was <laughs> counting weed seeds for a living. Uh, down working with with you Ryan and Lisa and Fritz and you know looking at putting that and that was actually spring wheat into that crop rotation with some alfalfa maybe uh, down in that Rochester area to manage giant ragweed you know that's resistant to all kinds of fun stuff and you know it's one of those things where depending on the year you know it's it's maybe not the most economical choice but but I will say the one plot the one crop we never had to weed ragweed out of was small grains or established alfalfa for that matter but so there is a lot of value there. Um, you know, another example is, you know, one of the little 16-acre fields, we have some spring wheat this year. The biggest reason we put it in that field is because water hemp got away from us last year in soybeans in a couple of patches, and it had one heck of a, a bumper crop of water hemp seed last year, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, so just knowing that there was that tremendous seed bank there, you know, planting a small grain, I have a pretty high level of confidence we can prevent seed production this year. So, you know, there is some value there too, especially when we place these maybe on some, uh, some unique acres that might have some of these, these special other uh, issues in some ways. You know, the other issue then, of course, we get into, and we do talk about it a lot of times at our field days, is marketing. Uh, you know, that is one of the issues in some places is, is what do you do with the crop? You know, you can't just take it to the local elevator in all these cases uh, and sell it as you might corn or soybeans. So, you know, it does maybe take a little more finesse there, but but there is a place, I think, in, in many areas. Yeah, some good points. You mentioned you mentioned water hemp and uh, just being out at the plots here in Rochester uh, last Friday. I mean, I, I could show you some photos. Obviously, we can't do that on a podcast, but I mean, the dense canopy that's there and how many weeks are we away from that with a soybean crop? 
You know, it's you've got a unifoliate, uh, one trifoliate on most of your soybeans out there. If they're in 20 or 30 inch rows in, in most cases, I mean, it's it'll be well into July before we have the same level of uh, row closure and canopy cover that uh, that we do with a small grain crop currently. So some pretty unique opportunities uh, when you start to think about it. And the marketing thing, I think thing, people have to get kind of creative and kind of along the marketing side of things. Um, one of the things that kind of makes small grains make sense is straw. Right. And so if we look at the climate this year and some of the weather conditions, um, how, what's the outlook for straw, straw production? Uh, and uh, do you guys want to make mention of any anything there? So, so the best way to gauge, you know, what straw is worth is to you can take two approaches. You can look at probably the Sox Center auction results um, that gives you some indication of what it's worth. The other thing you do have to consider is if you do the removal of the straw, what the value of that straw is as far as nutrients, which is a direct value, or the removal of organic matter um, in the long run. And if you have small grains ever so often, uh, you never remove all the organic matter because you're not going to shave it down to the ground. Uh, we can sustain partial removal of the straw and not have a long-term impact on soil organic matter. But you do have the direct removal of the nutrients, and that is actually mostly potash. It's a little bit of phosphorus and a little bit of nitrogen, but it's mostly potash. So that's one the other way you can value straw. Straw is a very much a local market. Uh, hauling straw too far uh, becomes very cross-prohibitive in many cases, and so it depends on your local situation, you know, if there's need for straw. Around the Twin Cities, there's a large need for small bales of straw. I'll let you venture to guess why they mostly want to have it in small bales. Most dairy producers probably want big bales or round bales. You know, and when it comes to marketing the grain, the first rule of marketing for small grains in the South southern half of the state is very simple. Be willing to haul. There is a number of mills in the southern, southeastern part of the state. Uh, there is mills um, scattered in Fargo, etc., and Fargo and other in South Dakota and, and Iowa that are more than willing to work with you because it is a cost savings to them uh, compared to the railroads. So there's one, and there's more mills than you think. The other thing is the Savage is, you know, the, the, modern, the northernmost point for barge traffic, and barges are used to move wheat. And so the terminals on Savage, uh, on the Mississippi, you know, will direct receive growers as well. And then there are some local elevators scattered throughout the area that handle, you know, in some cases wheat, in some cases winter wheat. And what we hope to see in the case of rye is that feed mills are going to start using it. Uh, there is studies underway and there is indeed um, some interest, for instance, in the pipestone system uh, to look at rye as a substitution 
and part of their rations. And there is actually, a, we just got funding for a, uh, this is on the organic side with the organic pigs that we have at the experiment station in Morris. Uh, it's like a one and a half million dollar grant to, to look more extensively at using rye in a, in a pig operation, and especially on the, on the uh, organic side. And, you know, part of that portion or that project will also be looking at life cycle assessments, so all the CO2 and emissions and all the, the other sustainability type uh, measures with that system, just, you know, because it is a winter cereal as opposed to, to uh, you know, some of the spring, spring crops that we're used to growing. So, so we're getting uh, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but I had one question I did want to ask because there's a fairly large field of winter wheat, uh, maybe I don't know three four miles from my house, uh, in a area that received a uh, deluge, uh, probably an inch or so of rain in less than an hour, uh, pounded it, and now it's got some down spots, and they happened right about the time that it was heading out and I kind of been watching it. Uh, I was curious at the time it happened, whether that would come back uh, to any extent and it has not. Uh, and so there seems to be these random spots of down wheat with heads on them uh, around the field. Uh, what, what can you expect in that circumstance? Is there anything management wise that should be done differently when you've got it down on the ground like that? So, Generally, when wheat goes down, uh, I, I use the three strikes and you're out rule. Uh, the stem of the wheat, when it goes down, the joints, the, the, basically the nodes, will start to elongate on the shade side, which means that the crop, even if the bottom portion of the stem is completely parallel to the soil surface, what it will try to do is partially lift up the second and third internode. It can only do that two times, and by the time the third time happens, it stays down, uh, unfortunately. That has an effect on yield. It has an, because that microclimate is just different. The, uh, everything is matted, and so you, you take a pretty severe yield penalty right in those areas. Um, but most times, if it is stem lodging, you will see that stem trying to partially erect. It will never reach the same height as the canopy around it, but as long as there's air movement through it, uh, right, and it's indeed the most sensitive to this type of lodging right at heading. And I, I liken that to building uh, scaffolding with bamboo, Chinese scaffolding uh, with bamboo. They forgot to put, the band basically is putting the cross braces. It hasn't put the cross braces in yet. It very rapidly elongated, which is a function of pumping a lot of water in those cells and those cells stretch, but it hasn't put the cross braces in. And that's what makes it a little bit more prone to lodging. And so it's, it's, it got the rain at the wrong time, Brad. And if I knew how to prevent that, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. So is there anything that, that needs to happen, though, in that field? I mean, is, no. is that going to be much more prone to, uh, to leaf diseases or any other pest issues that needs uh, extra, extra attention or extra scouting? You are probably a little bit more prone to armyworm because it's a very shaded, you know, very shaded areas. That's one of the areas where you like to look for armyworm uh, flights. 
it probably is a little bit more susceptible to the leaf diseases, but if you have a fungicide on it, it doesn't matter. It's not going to fill as well, so there are going to be probably a little bit problems with test. But if it's small areas, I wouldn't worry about it. Leaf rust-wise, not an issue. Scab may be slightly more prone, but that, again, um, with the fungicides that we use, I wouldn't expect it to be much worse. It's just that the, the, it, the photosynthesis isn't going to be as efficient because it's all matted, and so you see some yield penalties that way. But it is a nice spot to check for armyworm. So one last thing I'm thinking of here along the marketing sides of things, uh, for growers that might be interested in trying a small grain and trying to market it, is there a good resource for where they can, you know, find these opportunities as far as who to contact in order to maybe uh, get a contract or to sell the finished product? It, Ryan, it's a very good question. Um, I don't do that as, as part of my job because um, that would be one more thing. Let's put it that way. But I do have a lot of you know, names and contacts. And a lot of times it's indeed developing those personal relationships with the buyers at the mills. And just to give you a little example, there's a mill in Southeast Minnesota that is trying to work with a bunch of local growers. And he wanted me, the, the, the buyer in that case, wanted me, wanted Jared and I to actually put a program together. Now, unfortunately, that happened a little bit too late this spring because they're interested in actually contracting soft white winter wheat, which is not a class of wheat that we normally grow in Minnesota. It's really the, the Michigan and Ohio where that is mostly grown. It is one of the key ingredients uh, in a number of cereals, the soft white winter wheats. Um, and so, but I'm working with a breeder from University of Michigan and I'm testing some of their material to see if it's indeed winter hardy enough for Southeast Minnesota. And the data suggests right now with a couple of years of data that, yeah, we can probably raise soft white winter wheat in that part of the state with a reasonable chance of success. Um, and they look pretty decent yield-wise compared to hard red winter weeds that we normally think of as being suitable for Minnesota. So there you would have this small nucleus in very close proximity to the mill because that saves them tremendously on shipping because he's basically trying to ship in the wrong direction. And that is always cost prohibitive for mills. Well, excellent. So it sounds like to me like uh, networking is an important part of that whole uh, picture. And so... Uh, maybe some opportunities to do that with that uh, the summer field days and some of the other programming you guys do across the southern part of the state. Come and meet some of the people that are currently doing it, and and, and build some contacts, and and uh, and certainly uh, explore your opportunities. Um, anything else you guys wanted to talk about today? Well, with hearing nothing, uh, I want to thank our guests for being on the program today, as well as uh, thank all those listeners out there for listening to another episode of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. Thanks again. Thanks.